Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. I absolutely loved recording this episode because it's about a subject that has changed my life. I know so many of your lives as well. It's about digital nomadism, a term that's used, abused, debated, meaningful, meaningless, whatever. But to me, it's been really, really important. I'll try to sum that up just really quickly. When I was in my mid-20s and working my first, quote, real jobs, I had two sort of big issues that felt very separate in my life that I needed to contend with. The first was to become a competent earner. I had never made money. I didn't have any money and I had a lot of debt. So I needed to figure out a way to make a good living and I wasn't doing that at the time. So that was a very, very big issue. And then the second issue, I had never really owned my own time or location except on some very brief overseas travel adventures. And there was a second big thing in my life, which is I have to contend with that too. Like I don't have this kind of fundamental freedom to explore the world in a way that I'm, I'm just so fascinated by it. Like I had only had a few short weeks outside of my own country. I just knew I needed more. And those two interests felt completely disparate. It felt like it was either one or the other, right? You went and became sort of a traveler or you built a career. There was sort of no middle ground. That is, until I learned about sort of the tendrils of thoughts that have ultimately been brought together under this concept of digital nomadism. So for me, it wasn't laptop on the beach. It was the idea that you could both build wealth and own your time and freedom and explore the world. That ultimately made this topic, the topic of today's episode, you know, one of the essentially great obsessions of my lifetime. <laughs> so let's move on to it. But the bottom line is the term digital nomadism did matter a lot at the time, and it has mattered to us over the years here at the show because it was so few people doing it. We all wanted information regarding it and how we could make it work for us. So in order to talk about the history of digital nomadism, so happy to have someone on the show who I've shared many bowls of pho with over the years and who has recently written an amazing piece about the movement's trajectory. It's titled, somewhat unsurprisingly, Digital Nomadism History, and the author's name is James Clark. He's the creator of the Nomadic Notes blog, which he started in 2009 and has been a huge inspiration to me over the years. But most importantly and relevant to today's conversation, he's been more or less a full-time nomad experiencing different cultures and countries since the early 2000s. So let's just jump into it because I got to say this one was really, really fun. All right, James, the reason we're talking today is you wrote this brilliant piece called Digital Nomad History. It's quite long form and you quite literally do a better job than of anywhere else that it currently exists of mapping the history of this trend or this movement rather. And we're going to take the time today to walk through that history and share some of the key points. But first, I'd like if you could give us some context to 
why you did this and what inspired you. I've been a digital nomad since 2003. So I've had a great interest in the subject and I've been watching the movement grow over the years. So it's sort of been fascinating to see how it keeps developing. And then now, especially in the pandemic era, in 2020, things just changed. I think we can say safely now that digital nomadism is now in the mainstream. You know, we're at the point where we had this enormous movement of people. Millions of office workers were being told to work from home and instead they just discovered they could work from anywhere, which is basically what a digital nomad is. So you've got that movement on the one side and then on the other side, governments all around the world are starting to realise that, hey, this would actually be an ideal kind of visitor to our country to have people who are already making income to just come here rent a place and work for a while. So we're now at the point in history where uh, last year, in 2020, uh, Estonia was the first country to offer a digital nomad visa, and it was called digital nomad visa. And now there's like several countries which are offering that, and there's more news every day of more countries that are now planning to offer the same thing. So we're at the point now where countries are going to be fighting to attract digital nomads. So... With this, you know, enormous amount of interest in it, I thought, well, it'd be good to have a look at how we got to where we are today. I'm in lockdown in Vietnam at the moment, so what the hell, I've got a lot of time in my hands, I'm going to go through this and and research the hell out of this. So I had a great time researching this topic because I've been around for like 15 odd years of it and to see that it went back so much further was very fascinating to have a look to how it developed. Is that the main thing that surprised you in your research is how long the concept has been around? Yeah, I guess so. In the 90s when it was first sort of formulating, I wasn't even an office worker. I was, didn't even know how to turn a computer on at that point. When I saw the internet, I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I want to somehow work with computers. So going back, there were people before the internet was a thing that were predicting that this was going to happen. And the most fascinating one I found was Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction author and futurist. So let's then, James, talk about this, make sure the article that you wrote is laid out in a timeline. And I want to make sure that we attach our commentary to the timeline itself. So Arthur C. Clarke, who I'm not overly familiar with, let me just quote a few things you write. So we're talking about 1964. Arthur Clark. You talk a little bit about your process. And one of the things you point out, which is a theme of the TMBA, and I love this, you said another problem is that this, i.e. the history of digital nomadism on the internet, only represents the tip of the iceberg. The submerged part of the iceberg, i.e. 90% are digital nomads who never write about being a digital nomad. And I love, love, love that part of it, because I think part of what we've both seen being out on the road and meeting people, IRL, so to speak, is that that's where all the secrets are. They're not really on the web. The truth is it's, it's probably less than 1% of an iceberg, which is not even physically possible, but you get my point. The most successful digital nomads are not going to try and sell you an ebook on how to be an digital nomad because they've already worked it out and they're just quietly you know, getting on with their life. I'm just working with the information has been published. And that's sort of a whole other topic because I've 
after reading this, I feel like people need to write more about their experience. Why is that? Because it's really important information, I think. Even, I think just quality information. Like I went through so many uh, articles and there's like so many articles on how to be a digital nomad in Chiang Mai or something really cliched like that. There's hardly any articles on, you know, thoughts that people had, like maybe they had an observation of what they saw. So the more of that, which may not get as many readers now, but I think over time those sort of articles become more important because it sort of becomes a record of history. Lots of observations from expat authors that one of the things I've been toying around with, I guess I'll just drop this kind of concept here because it's something I've just been thinking a lot about is this concept of relative wealth. So the idea, you know, like when you think about like we're at the intersection of business and travel and I love these kind of like hardship posts, like expat literature where like in the colonial days, you'd like send some like low level bureaucrat who like wasn't doing so well in London or whatever. You'd like send them to India or whatever and they'd be like a local prince, you know, and like (laughs) they might not have had like the wherewithal to do that in London. So, but they were able to do it by their educational advantage, by the power of their currency, etc. And so, you know, when you think about having more freedom via purchasing power, you know, you can climb a hierarchy of wealth generation in a first world country, or you can earn in a first world country and downgrade your lifestyle to a place where you're automatically in a wealthy class. And I think that that's part of the story of digital nomadism is you know, I remember when I was first making as a freelancer $50,000 a year, which makes me, for my age, say an education level, not a very powerful consumer in a first world country. It literally puts me in like the investment wealth class in South America or Southeast Asia or in China at the time. And so, I don't know, I think one of the interesting themes of digital nomadism is offering you a chance to become a more powerful consumer and investor without necessarily spending more time building more wealth or climbing a career hierarchy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, true. It's like it took a while to get to that point. I think obviously we use uh, the four-hour work week as the sort of uh, milestone event in digital nomad history where people realize that that's how you could do it. So before that, there was a lot of groundwork to be laid out where people were like just working out, you know, working from remotely first. So once there was a, a groundswell of people working remotely, then the next step up was the, okay, we can now do this anywhere. So why not do it? Yeah, it's almost like the four-hour work week turned what was maybe a bunch of emotional things for freelancers and entrepreneurs into a very mathematical thing. And perhaps COVID did that for workers because there are a lot of like emotional and social ties to working a knowledge work job in New York City or San Francisco. And it's been interesting for me to watch people in the tech community like not really be turned on to like true remote work. Like even the opportunity to like work from home wasn't synonymous with the opportunity to work from anywhere just yet. Like they still had to make that leap because there's such a strong social network of like, hey, we're centered around this geographic area and this type of lifestyle for that matter. Absolutely. I see that in this history that I wrote where most of the blogs were all like these Bay Area tech workers talking about going down to their local cafe instead of working at the Google office. So it wasn't like they were even going, oh, you know what, I'm going to go to Thailand for a month. It's like, you know what, hell, I can go down to 
Java Joe down the road and I'm like, look at this, I can plug in my computer with this cord they've got there set up for me. I don't have to be at the office. And that's the tip of the iceberg of like just the people that were writing. I think because it was all these tech workers that they're the only blog posts that sort of exist today of that's the only experience that I could find so far. And just going from my own experience, I I went digital nomad in 2003 and I was living in Ireland at the time and then I went to Switzerland of all places and I was just living there working on the, online and I, the only place I ever used to go were like the webmaster forums like webmaster world and stuff like that and just learning about when the next Google update is coming out you know because I was like living on the monthly Google update so I was just immersed in that scene and no one ever talked about where they were most of them were probably just kids in their mum's basement I never stopped to think hey I'm in Switzerland isn't that amazing I was like I don't know so there was no one else really talking about it so I think it was, you know, that four-hour work week moment, which was like a thing where it's like, you know what, you can go. If you're San Francisco worker, go and work in Thailand instead and give yourself permission to do that. Why not do this? Just tell your boss you're going to work at home for a while, but then go and work overseas and just, you know, experiment. So there was more experimenting about where to work. I think it took a long time for people to realise that, but we're there now. And the big thing too is it's like it's going to change the status quo of uh, offices as a necessary thing. It's like, you know, you have these huge campuses where companies build these places where everyone has to work and now people have realised that, you know what, I'm just as productive at home and I get two hours of my day back because I don't have to commute anymore. This is history playing out now, which I don't know the answer to because we're, we're still in that Thing. So if I update this in 10 years' time, we'll be able to go, oh, wow, it was so obvious that in 2021 the office was dead or something. But for now, it's like we're still fighting it out. Companies still want people to go to their office because they've spent so much money on it. But, you know, people are like, going, you know what, I kind of like my own office. I've got a nice coffee machine here and I can do what I want. And the other thing about digital nomadism too is like most people aren't going to be long-term nomads i'm sort of a outlier in that regard i don't promote myself to do this lifestyle i look at it as it'll become like a a gap year or an experience year you know where people go away for two years and come back home and live there permanently you know i guess boss man ian's a good example he did these years of digital nomading and now he's got a really nice home base set up in texas but i think that also is a great experience for people is like I think that's why Australians have this great outset because so many of us go off, we take advantage of these working holiday visas. So we go off and work in the UK or in Ireland or do this skiing in Canada or what have you. So it gives you a a head start into like living abroad. And I think that's going to be open for people that have never had that opportunity before. So let's take a deep dive then into the history of digital nomadism. And for me and you, a little uh, walk down memory lane as well. Digital Nomad history starts in 1964, of all places. Can you let us know why you selected this year and what happened? There was a very good quote from Arthur C. Clarke, who is a famous science fiction writer. You probably better know him for the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. So he wrote that book, and that became a very famous movie. But he was also just fascinated with you know, technology and how the future is going to look. 
it was in an uh, interview and you were saying, look, in 50 years' time, we've got all this technology coming up. We've got satellites that have just been launched where we can, like, talk instantaneously to people and technology is going to improve so much. And he said that we're in 50 years' time, it'll be possible that someone could do their work in Bali rather than in London. And I thought, wow, that's a really amazing quote. And then we have... You know, almost 50 years later, Mr. Dan Andrews at TMBA is like the first digital nomad to set up in uh, Bali. You saw it coming. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. <laughs> According to the internet, I'm the first one. <laughs> According to the internet. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of uh, expats, of course. You know, you've got a lot of people written about Bali that go back to the 1930s. What we're doing isn't new in regards to foreigners living abroad, but this new class of people that are using technology to live and work anywhere. Uh, as far as I could tell, you know, you're the first one to write about it. Maybe there were other digital nomads there, but they weren't writing about it. And in, you know, in the early blogs, people weren't even really sure what was going on. It's like, hey, I've just arrived here. I don't know how this works. We're just going to try it out. You know, the internet's not very good, but we're going to try and make it happen. Part of my uh, blogger ethos is, History doesn't go to the victors. It, history goes to the ones who take the time to write the history. Let's move on to the next date that then you feel is critical in the history of digital nomadism, James. Well, just to go back on to one more predictor, we had uh, Robert Noyce from Intel who said people are going to choose to work where it's conducive to live rather than live where it's conducive to work. You know, instead of being next to a factory in a, you know, a cold boring city in the middle of nowhere they're like well i'm going to work on the beach and do my work here and at that point you know he, he had his hand in helping reduce the size of computers so he you know obviously saw it coming this was 1981 you know computers were still pretty bulky at that point but they had been you know he was a co-inventor of the integrated circuit so he's obviously helped bring down the house size computers down to sort of like a, a box that sits on your desk and not totally portable yet, but we're a hell of a long way to getting there. Let's fast forward then to the next, obviously there's many critical dates, but one that you think would be interesting to the audience. I think the next point up is 1997. So there's a few things happened here. Wi-Fi becomes available. And the most, even though it's, it wasn't really important at the time, there was a book released called Digital Nomad. So that seems to be the first instance where digital nomad was uttered as a phrase. And that talks about, you know, people are going to go back to doing what they love, travelling and being able to work wherever they want. So they saw that coming. But I think even then the concept was still a bit far out at the time. You have another author, Dan Pink, who wrote a, an article in Fast Company called Free Agent Nation. And that was, I think, a more relatable article because... There was a great movement of people that were starting to work online at that point. So that was sort of more focusing on the people that were becoming online entrepreneurs or contractors for companies that could work at home rather than someone that has to go and work at the office. So this was bringing millions of people from the office into their home office. So that was sort of a stepping stone to becoming digital nomads. It's like, well, get it, get you out of the office first. And he ended up writing a book a couple of years later, Free Agent Nation, which continues on with that where he wrote about these free agents who were like just working at home and he occasionally talked about some people who are just traveling as well but that wasn't really the main point at, at that 
era. You know, I was using computers at that time and thinking about you had this like generation of foreign correspondents who were able to sort of like kind of they weren't quite allowed to be anywhere typically, but you know, they could be somewhere. And then you had like a generation of salespeople who were able to do this, but they kind of had territories typically. So salespeople were sort of this next generation of people who were like remote workers leveraging technology. But I think what Daniel Pink hit on is like, there's kind of like this sweeping reform that comes through. Like all of a sudden now, like all of these job classes are in a remote category, like administrative support, sales support. And I think that that's what happened like with the Wi-Fi revolution in 1999 and portable computing and stuff that all of a sudden it wasn't these like very specific types of jobs. It was just a, a whole host of categories of jobs became remotable. Yeah, and I think that's the point is like there were, there's so many of these jobs that uh, there's brain jobs where you don't need to be in a physical location. You're not laboring or manufacturing something. So it was an idea that was so ripe to happen that as soon as it was as it was technologically available to do so, it just started happening organically over time. And the actual, when you say technologically possible, in 1999, maybe we could point to a few things. You had high quality OSs on, you know, all of a sudden you have like something like Windows 1995, which, you know, exploded across. I remember that coming out in America and it making like these computers we had in our homes, like much more usable and like useful. You had Wi-Fi, which means that, you know, you don't need to like contract with some cable company if you're going to move somewhere remotely or go to a cafe. And then you have like kind of consumer internet maturing as well at the same time. Yeah. So you've got Windows 95 in 95, obviously. So that by 99, we've had four years of very solid growth. Like there was already people lining out out the stores to buy the software where you would line it up with your CD-ROMs. So you've got four years of people are now familiar with, you know, the internet and obviously AOL was sending out their CDs to everyone so you can get your AOL email and Hotmail as well. There were so many people online that it was ready for people to like go, well, let's go and work online. Let's take our job home. And then people started making businesses online as well. So that was really a fascinating time. Although one of the big critiques of the cryptoverse is that you know, first off, it's a bunch of people you don't know where they are and hanging out in webmaster forums or whatever, similar. <laughs> and then it's a bunch of people like breaking the rules. And like, I remember at that moment in the internet, creating fake credit card numbers, buying AOL accounts, like buying like credits and like little rewards online with these credit cards that we would make up by finding banks that had just opened. We like the internet wasn't ready no. <laughs> yet for the consumer level applications. No, no, no. <laughs> Monday, Monday, Monday. This Monday morning, ignite your business growth with an absurdly high-quality hire from Dynamite Jobs. A hire so explosive to your bottom line, you're bound to be bogged down in cash money. To get started, it's just a zero to 30-minute phone call rocket-fueled by the legendary Ian Close and Showin. Watch him risk his reputation with career-killing high-pressure sales tactics. Experience live the, let me take that to my finance guy move, the hard sell. And I think I need a chief operating officer. What would change in your business if we could get that done for you today? Classic reversal. Hiring used to be a pain in the ass, but with Dynamite Jobs recruiting, it's scintillating, titillating, profitillating. 
this Monday, Monday, Monday. Go to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. Well, James, let's then go on to a next moment in history that you find compelling. I think 2007 is the next pivotal point. And you start at 2007 with the first iPhone being released, which was sort of like a major milestone in technology. Computing in the pockets, the sort of stuff that Arthur C. Clarke would have dreamed about. And then, you know, a few months later, you've got the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss, which sort of gave people the permission, an idea to, like, work from anywhere. And you could start using the cost of living to start living somewhere else or outsourcing stuff. All these things that are related to being a digital nomad was sort of put down into one book. And I think that was a huge turning point for our movement, at least anyway, where people were now realizing that they could do this anywhere. Tim was the right person to do it. And it was the right book to his personality, his you know, willingness to maybe be a little annoying or look past the rules or something was kind of, I think, important because there is this undercurrent that like, this isn't right. This isn't the right thing to do. There is this like iconoclastic nature to, you still see that undercurrent today in critiques of digital nomadism. Like it's gentrification, it's this, it's that or whatever. Like I do think as a culture, we sort of needed the permission and the, the blueprint to say, you know what? What's really clever, making money in a first world country and spending it in a developing country. Like that's clever. You, like that's not weird. That's just smart. That's just good business is what Tim Ferriss would say. And I feel like that was an empowering message for a whole generation of tech workers. I think, yeah, that's the important point. There was, there was a lot of ideas that were already available, but he just lashed them all together into one easy to read package, which hadn't been done before. This package sort of came out at the right time, you know, perhaps by the right person that delivered the message. Obviously, a touch of uh, marketing genius as well helped in that regard. You know, that's also kind of a big point in, you know, blogging at that point. And I also noticed while going through all of these blogs that he lit a spark for the uh, lifestyle design movement. That was his thing. He wasn't really a digital nomad or he doesn't really talk about that, but he talks about lifestyle design. So there's a lot of bloggers that came after him were like life hacking, if you will. They were like trying to work out how to get more out of life with less. I'd like to insert, you know, what I've always thought to be a critical convergence in the history of digital nomadism. Skype launched in 2004, but I think like Skype in and out launched in like 2006 or seven, around the time the four hour work week came out. And I think that like those two things and related technologies were like this very powerful bind of the difference, James, between making a living on the internet, like you were doing through affiliate marketing or through webmastering or these various sort of knowledge work, internet related things versus being a freelancer that maintains a relationship via telephone to their employer or to their clients is dramatic. Like I, I seen on the ground the amount of people that essentially make their living through the telephone is many multiples more than people who are pure internet income earners. And so I feel that one of the biggest understated sparks of the digital nomad movement 
was the ability to make affordable voice calls globally. And the Skype really enabled a lot of that. Absolutely. The uh, revolutionary how, because that was like the biggest problem. Like as a traveler, I'd buy these like phone cards and it costs like $2 a minute to call Australia or wherever. It's like something ridiculous. Then all of a sudden, I can now just plug in some headphones and I'm talking into my computer to my family in Australia or whatever, and you can live anywhere. And that was absolutely a big point. Did you see the effect of the four-hour work week on the ground as you were traveling around? Absolutely. It was a lonely life. I mean, I had friends, obviously, but as a worker, online worker, I just didn't know that there were other people doing it. So I'd just turn up at a internet cafe and do my work. I don't even remember how I found out about four-hour work week, but someone, I read it somewhere and I was, I was back in Australia at that point, so I went to the library and, and borrowed it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. This is really going to, I think, be change things. And then sure enough, 2008 and 2009, there's like people traveling and working and, and writing about it. More people are writing about that lifestyle. So that's why I started Nomadic Notes in 2009 was like to put myself out there. I didn't really have a smoke signal to tell people where I was. So I just used that as a way to go, well, this is where I am. So come and find me. And I, I ended up looking for other people as well. And from 2010, I think that's when people are really identifying as digital nomads exclusively. Before that, there were sort of like travel bloggers or they were sort of doing some other thing. But now they're sort of adding this tag as well of being a digital nomad. You write that in 2008, the post-four-hour workweek era, 2008 to 2009, was the golden age of lifestyle design blogs. Along with travel blogs, they would help foster the digital nomad movement to create its own identity. I've used in that example of like you've got uh, Tainan.com, who is like a classic lifestyle design blogger who would just talk about you know, the hacks he would do to make his life. He lived like a millionaire basically on a, a regular person's salary, which is sort of what Tim Ferriss was doing. And then, you know, I used uh, Tainan's digital nomad packing list, which was like one of the first of its kind. So you had these people that were sort of lifestyle designing. Maybe there were other people doing stuff like, you know, getting your finances in order or just finding somewhere cheaper to live. And then I, I mentioned also Chris Gillibo, Art of Nonconformity. He had this... Well, he still has his site, but at the time he was traveling a lot. He was doing his visiting every country in the world quest and he was doing it through travel hacking by getting frequent flyer points, by getting all these credit cards and then going to all these places. And he was writing about the process rather than, you know, I went to Hong Kong and here's 10 sites that you see in Hong Kong. He would go, I went here and this is what I was doing as a, someone who travels like I do. So it was a very different style of blogging at that point. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that digital nomads do, it's not new. So like travel points are not a new thing. People have been like collecting frequent flyer points as long as you can collect frequent flyer points. So it's not a something that digital nomads invented, but it was sort of a, brought to a new audience and reimagined for the digital nomad age. You might look back and, you know, I remember waiting for Tynan's packing posts to get published because this was like 
like almost like a, you're clamoring for a financial newsletter to give you a stock tip or something. I was waiting for Tynan to publish this <laughs> stuff. And now it might look ridiculous in the age of Instagram and social media and stuff. But at the time, it was actually really useful because you couldn't pre-book on Airbnb or on Agoda, like affordable housing. And so what you brought in your bag to both like enjoy a backpacker lifestyle and to make a, a living successfully was a pretty big consideration. Because you would often arrive in a city and have to spend a few days walking around figuring out, you know, what would be reasonable accommodation for you to, to, to keep your budget in line. And, you know, you had a lot of then requirements as a digital nomad, whether it be cameras and not everything was completely in an iPhone at that point. I remember I had basically as a digital nomad in 2009, I had one full backpack that was essentially an iPhone, books headphones, cameras, video camera, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think uh, that's the point. It was like, you know, there would have been packing lists. There's always something before us. But yeah, those packing lists were like, well, you're going on a vacation for two weeks. Here's your enormous suitcase and this is what you're going to put in it. So we needed someone for our time. So that those Tainan posts were like great because it's like, oh, wow, this is like I can do all these things with as minimal of stuff as possible. That was just that time where people were experimenting, like, okay, what can I do? This is how I can do it. And, you know, just other travel hacking, I guess, before co-working had started in the 2000s, like uh, someone had invented the name co-working and they set up a space for remote workers to live. But at that point, it wasn't widespread everywhere. You worked out that you could get, like, the, the Regis Pass, like those those stodgy uh, old kind of school office places where you have to work with like corporate people, but they give out passes for free <laughs> if you sign up or something like that. So it's like, oh, there's an office you can go to on an emergency. So those are the sort of like early digital nomad hacks, I guess you could say, that were, people were sharing. I think it depends on like who the reader is and what the content is. But like, I remember this golden age of blogs as something that's very important to me because not only did we clamor for the information and for the community, like, oh my gosh, look at so-and-so publishing this about that. It felt secret and powerful, but also sort of important because it was pre-social media publishing where simply everyone could publish all the time and you could triangulate information through a variety of online booking sites and TripAdvisor and Instagram and Facebook and things like that. You really relied on people publishing things to blogs and to forums to understand what the heck was even going on. Yeah, definitely it was uncharted territory at that point and, and blogging was different at that point because it wasn't social media. And you would check your RSS news feed when someone has posted, your little thing would light up there. It was also, too, it was the age of discovery of like, okay, we're just working out how we can do this. It was like, oh my God, I can like, you know, do some work at this airport. They've got Wi Fi, you know, in the age before, you know, airports didn't have Wi Fi everywhere. So it was kind of exciting time. Like, this is like, we're at the frontier. So I, I would love reading all these articles going, okay, this is kind of an interesting. Thing that's happening now. Thank you for also identifying this very pod as, as part of that golden age. Certainly, we were right in the mix amongst all of it. In 2010, you write that the digital nomad era had begun in earnest. Digging through the historical archives, 2010 is like a Cambrian explosion event in the digital fossil record. More digital nomad themed sites start appearing, and people are identifying as digital nomads. Yeah, so it was. 
quite uh, an interesting time because I was sort of around at that point. I was in Chiang Mai between 2010 and 2012. I'd already been online seeing what everyone's doing and for some reason the digital whisper was like everyone's going to Chiang Mai. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go there. And sure enough, I think that was the first time I met people of my kind. You know, I'd spent so many times. (laughs) I'm a backpacker at heart, you know, so I've been to so many hostels and stuff and I, in one regard, I would identify as a backpacker back in those days, but I would never meet people doing what I'm doing. So then to come, it was sort of like the first community experience I had where I turned up and there was people who were digital nomads. You know, they were like, hey, I'm running a, a website online or oh, I'm doing some graphic design. I freelance graphic design and I've got this blog as well. And all these people are like full on, have a full time job in their computer. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And now in that year, there was like people were writing full on articles like how to be a digital nomad, how much it costs to be a digital nomad, what's the best place to live as a digital nomad, and courses. So, yeah, lots of things happening. Yeah. So maybe like the 2010 to 2014 era, like there's a couple of things I'm hearing, which is like the professionalization of it. Even if it's at a small scale, you're seeing the early digital nomad bloggers turning their stuff into courses, into eBooks, into like professional articles that they're launching. So instead of like, here's my photo of where I'm at today. And like, here's the coconut I drank or whatever. It's like, no, here's like five ways to be a five, this five, that like these kind of like professionalization of like, I'm trying to build something here to like grow a business potentially someday or grow an audience. You're also seeing, you know, you mentioned it, you went to Chiang Mai and you saw other people identifying as digital nomads and meeting as digital nomads. That's something that starts to happen after 2010, where now we all identify as this thing and we're going to meet up as this thing. And so you start to see events like that mirror what you experienced in Chiang Mai. Now, all of a sudden, you can buy tickets and go to events as a digital nomad. That started happening. Our first event was in 2011. Our first sort of public event was 2012. And I think that we were kind of like right there in that explosion of like lots of people were doing the same thing at the same time. Absolutely. I saw, uh, I went through your archive and you're basically the first for many things. So I, I saw your first meetup in, in the Philippines. And, you know, maybe there were informal digital nomad meetings like I was going to, but no one was like putting out a blog post going, hey, here's where we are. We were just informally meeting up. And then you obviously have your own DCBKK in 2012, which is like, you know, more entrepreneurialism. And then from there, you have, you know, more and more digital nomad uh, meetings popping up everywhere. For those listeners who can take the time to jump over to Nomadic Notes and, and go through the article, it really is like a double coffee, like multiple hour deep dive. So many wonderful artifacts, digital artifacts and blogs and uh, creatives that you know were really important to me. There's always like this kind of idea, like how important is this? Is this frivolous? Is this mockable or whatever? But looking back through the history and the articles you've linked to, Great blogs like Spartan Traveler, a piece by David Heenberger, Tynan, like like you mentioned, still just wonderful eye-opening pieces about you know just how people are reimagining the career script. 
Yeah, I think that was part of the thing it took so long to write because I ended up just falling down so many rabbit holes of reading old blog posts and, you know, having a bit of nostalgia at the same time. Looking forward, I that's why I've said, you know, I hope people write more about their experience and write about what they're doing. And even if you think that it's boring and no one's going to read it, it's like, you know, this is a historical archive because there's so much information just gets lost over time. You know, blogs die and, and we lose the pieces that put together how we got to where we are. So I, I feel really passionate about keeping the historical archive like that. So, yeah, I hope, you know, and you've always been the, you know, fierce advocate for finding your medium, whether it's starting a podcast or blogging or whatever, just get out there and do it and talk or write or video about what you're doing. A few more things I would just want to flag up here in terms of the history. There was an important piece written by Damien Walter called Slouching Toward Nimmenheimen. One of the reasons for me it was important is that it was the first like PC piece about digital nomads. Someone who understands like how to write a piece and maybe send it off to some fancy magazine took the time to write a piece about digital nomads. When I was putting this together, I had like maybe a dozen articles that I remember in history of you know seminal pieces in digital nomad history. I go, oh yeah, that Damien Walter article. I'm going to put that in there. And there was that one about this one that was in the New Yorker, for example, where digital nomadism. There was a digital nomad scandal, for example. But yeah, that article about Newman Hyman was like, oh wow, this is like not just some random blogger who's just hacking together an article about his experience. It's someone who's you can put words together and explain what we're doing in a very eloquent way. So that started happening more and more too as the movement became known more people were like intrigued about what's going on you know more I guess astute observers would come to a place and notice that we're like a bunch of people working in the cafes and and hear about what's happening and then chronicle what's happening there. One of the observations and the tendrils that Damien identifies is you know he reminds us that you know all this literature that so many of us are familiar with with the expat community in Paris in the 20s that one of the primary reasons they were there is a currency arbitrage, that actually you could live a really good lifestyle if you were able to earn a more powerful currency. Obviously, Europe was in a difficult time at, at that time. There is this like sort of expat kind of culture that the digital nomad is borrowing from and participating in. Like This is a story that's a lot older than Timothy Ferris in 2007 with the four-hour work week. And I think that that was part of why that piece you know, was successful, it sort of grounded things in a way that was just a step beyond the uh, five-part listicle about, you know, what you're putting in your backpack. It's, it's a little bit easier to shrug off or laugh off. I think that's probably why I have fond memories of those early years of Chiang Mai, because it was like the first time I discovered a movement. And so going back to like the, the American writers in Paris, when they were, they were living there on the cheap so they could, like, you know, knock out work and have a good time at the same time. And then you maybe look at New York in the 60s when it was sort of bottoming out at that point as a city and it was like a dangerous place and rent was cheap. And so it would just bring artists from all over America because you could just live there for nothing and just, you know, live a grand life and then living with people, like minded people, and knocking out history with your art. So maybe uh, I feel like when I've met other digital nomads, I can now talk about what we're doing and how we're living this life. 
you know, at some point you might say, oh, it's just frivolous of what we're doing, but this movement is now grown to a point where governments recognise that, hey, you know what, it's, it's desirable to have people coming here and work, working for a long time if they've got a, a stable income coming in. You see all the bad articles about digital nomads, like the, the bromads who are talking loudly in cafes and stuff like that and behaving badly and riding around their motorbikes without helmets and being idiots. But, you know, once again, it's 99.99% of people are just got their heads down and working and spending money in the economy. Now you've got like something like 12 or so countries that have official digital nomad visas because they realise it's a tourism office. They have to spend a lot of time to get someone to come to their country for one week. But, you know, a digital nomad office, they only have to, once they've got someone there, they, they stay for a whole year. So the, the economics work out better to, you know, try and bring in the digital nomad as well. James, well, I know you commonly bestow awards in your articles, and I am very proud to bestow upon you the award for best blog post of 2021. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I absolutely loved how generous it was and, and all the uh, treasures that you dug up and uh, that we can go and enjoy. And I'm curious if, you know, having gone through the process of writing this article, if it changed your sense for maybe the future of digital nomadism or gave you a sense for what might be next? Part of putting this together is just to see where we are now because we are at such a tumultuous point in history where we're still not a long way out of the, the pandemic yet and we don't know where everyone's going to end up after it's finished. Maybe it's going to be a couple of years away yet. So it was sort of nice to take stock and go count the wins, you know, count the wins that even as we speak, like this week, Costa Rica signed a you know law saying that they want to let digital nomads in. They're just they're just waiting for the prime minister or something to sign it. And now Sri Lanka have said they want to bring in a one year digital nomad visa. So these are on top of the other dozen or so. So there's more and more coming in. So at this point, it's still a work in progress. So we're just experiencing history unfold very rapidly at the moment. And I would hate to make a prediction about that, other than hopefully there's more interesting places to end up. Like, for example, like Croatia became one of the first digital nomad visa countries. And this was a really interesting story because it was just a digital nomad from the Netherlands wrote an open letter to the Prime Minister of Croatia and asked for a digital nomad visa. And the Prime Minister responded and said, OK, we'll do it. So they now have like a digital nomad visa section on the on their travel page as well so it's sort of like it's becomes a travel experience so you know we become advocates for the digital nomad movement it's sort of like too like the cities in america are now going to be competing for digital nomads i think maybe the high watermark of uh corporate sponsorship in america where you had like amazon headquarter two when they were building that and all the different cities were competing to get that office in their city and they were chucking all sorts of tax credits at them to try and bring them there and that that might be the last time that happens because offices are going to become less attractive now cities are going to try and compete for digital nomads and remote workers so you had like recently the mayor of miami put a big billboard saying hey come and move to miami dm me so he's talking in our language and he's realized that it's like you know what, bring all these people in. It's like instead of like the Miami Tourism Board flogging their guts out to bring in millions of 
tourists for one week, bring in hundreds of thousands of remote workers for one year. Now, the economics just make sense. So having those savvy leaders who are like going, we need a digital nomad visa and we need people that are going to talk directly to people that are writing letters to them rather than ignoring them, you know, that's what we're going to see more of, I think. Very cool. Well, James Clark, thanks for writing the article and thanks for having this leisurely digital nomad coffee conversation with us today. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to James Clark for coming by the show. Check out that amazing article, Digital Nomad History at nomadicnotes.com. Would love to hear your thoughts on this one. I hope you can tell how much I enjoyed it. And an extra special sauce shout out to James Clark. We've had wonderful meetups all around the world, and he's inspired and informed so much of the strategies, the ideas, the thoughts behind what's happened on this show over the years. So it's just wonderful to have him on the show to talk about some of this history uh, that fascinates us so much. That's it for this week. We'll be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Time, talking crypto. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.